Danielle Houston. I'm a health and welfare advisor here at Locked In Companies. This is my podcast, The Checkup. I have another Locked In guest with me today who I'm excited to introduce to you as our labor and employment expert. Paula Day came to us about the same time that I started at Locked In. She joined our team of legal experts in the space of labor and employment. She's got nearly 30 years of law experience, with the last 20 being a focus in this labor space. So Paula, welcome to the checkup and welcome to Locked In. We, we kind of came on board at the same time. So tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Sure. Hi, Danielle. Thank you. Before joining Lockton, I was in-house counsel for YRC Worldwide, a nationwide trucking company. So I have experience dealing with labor and employment matters really from coast to coast in virtually all 50 states. So in addition to that, just providing guidance to all areas of the operation. So, and now, you know, we're both about three months in to our tenure here, and you get the great experience of working with all kinds of employers in all different states and industries. And, you know, I know you've had a bit of experience working here in Washington state as well. So I'm excited to hear what you are going to share with us because there's a lot going on. Would you agree? Yes, there's always something going on in the area of labor and employment law. So it's yes. it keeps it interesting for sure. Well, let's start with just a quick update on some things that are happening in Washington state that don't have a they don't have a direct connection into benefits, but there's some updates and changes with the minimum wage. So would you just highlight those for us? Absolutely. Um, starting January 1 of 2021, there are a few changes to the minimum wage. The Washington state minimum wage is increasing to $13.69 per hour. That's a 19 cent increase. SeaTac is increasing to $16.57 per hour for certain employees. And that will be hotels with 100 or more guest rooms and 30 or more workers, as well as food service or retail operations employing 10 or more non-management persons and then transportation employers. Seattle as well is increasing minimum wage to $16.69 per hour for large employers, those with 501 or more employees, and then increasing to $15 per hour for small employers of 500 or fewer employees, so long as the employer is paying $1.69 per hour toward medical benefits or the employer's earning $1.69 per hour in tips. Our hearts go out to employers in Washington state who try to keep all of these things straight, right? There's a lot to keep on top of. So we appreciate your your guidance and your accessibility to us as we navigate this. There are also some key changes to paid family medical leave, which I don't think will come as a surprise to most employers. I was surprised to see that there would not be an increase to the premium, but some of these other changes are gonna be really important for employers to know as we start January. And the first one is a broadening of the definition of who can be eligible to take some leave for. Can you start with the child spouse for us? Right, so they have expanded the definition of child now to include 
the child's spouse. So it already included a child regardless of age, and now it includes that child's spouse. Which, as you know, we sat in on the same educational piece this week, and I totally heard that wrong. I was shocked when you set me straight on that. So we'll need to pay attention to that piece. The other one that I think is a pretty big deal is that the state isn't going to reduce benefits based on an employee receiving perhaps PTO to cover some of their paid family leave. Can you walk us through that one? And, and we'll probably need to look at that in two parts, right? The, the change and how those benefits are going to be covered. And then, you know, let's talk about, do we have any specific advice that employers should be thinking about and thinking about pretty quickly? Okay, absolutely. So previously, the state permitted an offset when other benefits were received from the employer, but now the state it will not reduce benefits if the employee is also receiving some sort of supplemental benefit payment like PTO or other paid leave. So what that means is an employee could actually receive more than 100% of their pay while they're out on leave. Which is exactly something that we don't want to have happen. You know, we want people to be able to get well, get healed up, recover, come back into work, but never make more being out of work than you are in work. So, you know, employers who have tried to offset and understand what the state paid first so that they could pay that balance with PTO or perhaps those who have a short-term disability contract on top of the state benefit what should those employers be thinking about? Right. Um, since the regulations state that an employer may, but does not have to permit employees to utilize supplemental benefits during that paid family medical leave period, I would recommend that employers include a statement in their paid family medical leave policy that you don't offer supplemental benefits such as PTO during any period covered by the Paid Family Medical Leave Act. It would just be difficult, if not impossible, to try and figure out how much the employee is getting from the department and supplementing that amount to 100%. And like you said, I mean, if employees thought that they could get 150% of their pay while they're out on leave, you know, that that's gonna possibly encourage some abuse of the leave provisions. Right. And it ties in with what I would classify as maybe some administrative changes that the state's going to make where they're being pretty proactive and saying that starting in January, they're not going to give employers really any details. So employers that have been able to see how much the state's going to offset or get additional information, they're not going to have any promised access to that. All they're going to know is that that claim was approved or denied. So bare bones. Yes. Real bare bones. Um, Can you talk about the benefit overlap too? Because I know in the past year, this has been a question for a lot of employers. There was some confusion and not a ton of clarity about how benefits would work. So we've got some clarification there too. Right. So as everyone probably knows, under the federal FMLA, when an employee is out on an approved leave, their health benefits must continue. And under the Washington Act, if it's not covered by the federal FMLA, there is no obligation to continue the health benefits. But now the state has said, if that leave overlaps by even one day, 
with a federal FMLA leave, then it must be covered for the entire period of any leave covered only by the Washington Paid Family Medical Leave Act. And does that include coverage too at the same cost that the employee would experience if they were actively at work? That is correct. Okay. Anything else under paid family medical leave that I missed here? I think you've covered the highlights. (laughs) Okay. Well, there are some highlights about COVID. Go figure. That is going to be, you know, the thing I think we've all talked the most about this year, of course. Now that we have a vaccine and that started to be rolled out. Did I put the disclaimer out here too that, you know, we're all working from home. So you're going to hear dogs and kids and deliveries and we're just rolling with it because this is life this year. Now that the COVID vaccine is being made available, obviously really limited, we should start making plans, we being employers, about what our policies are going to look like around that. Here in Washington state, there was a a news brief the other night. Obviously, there's some questions and some conversation about can or should employers require their employees to get the vaccine? hot topic. And I know you have some great thoughts there. So do you want to walk us through um, maybe what can the exceptions be? Let's start there. Sure. So the EEOC, I mean, specific to the COVID vaccine, other than some very recent guidance that I'll, I'll talk about here in a few minutes, they haven't weighed in directly on making it mandatory. They did so in terms of the H1N1 a pandemic back in 2009. So we would anticipate that same guidance is going to be applicable here as well. But the concerns that were expressed at that point were that if an employee had a valid religious objection to having the vaccine, that an employer would need to accommodate that. And likewise, if there was a concern under the ADA that might require a reasonable accommodation, an employer would need to do that. You know, for instance, pregnancy comes to mind that right now, I mean, it's going to be months before the vaccine will be um, determined to be safe for pregnant women to take. So if you had a mandatory vaccine requirement and an employee was pregnant, then that employee would need a, a reasonable accommodation of, of not being required to get the vaccine. And really, this is the next layer of the conversation. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, and I would hope that this is going to be really front of mind for employers as they're considering a policy. There are the things that we would like to have happen. And then there's the whole question of, but should you? There's some kind of deep philosophical questions that are woven into this. Um, What would you say about that? Well, I mean, I think employers need to decide and consider if they're going to make the vaccine mandatory, how are they going to respond if an employee simply refuses to be vaccinated and they don't have a religious objection or need a reasonable accommodation under the ADA? Would the employer decide they're going to discharge that employee? You know, it's important that they'll treat all similarly situated employees the same way. So if you have other employees who've also declined to be vaccinated without any um, objection that might be protected under Title VII or the ADA, you'd need to handle that the same way. So, I mean, right now, I know there's all kinds of statistics out there in terms of 
how many persons are willing to get the vaccine right now. But I mean, an employer with a mandatory vaccine policy could potentially have 20% or more of their workforce that just says, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. So they just need to be prepared and think through, okay, if we have a mandatory policy and persons refuse, are we going to terminate their employment? And what are the optics on that, you know, even beyond the, maybe the primary piece, which I mean, is the most important piece. Would you really be willing to terminate that much of your workforce and, and toe that line with every single person who met that definition? What about, you know, and I feel like this is such new space to, you know, we just ask the questions. I think maybe even talk about things that maybe employers aren't even maybe wanting to ask yet. But, you know, can we classify this like a wellness program? Can we offer incentives to people who are willing to take the vaccine? You know, maybe not a mandate, but a carrot? Right. Employers can do that. You know, it's anticipated that it's going to be a few months, um, several months before the general employee population will have access to the vaccine. Uh, Similar to mandating the vaccine, employers would need to provide some sort of accommodation, um, even under an incentive program for those persons with valid religious or disability related reasons for not being vaccinated. So if, you know, you mentioned the wellness incentive, they would need to go ahead and provide that to somebody who had a valid objection if they were unable to be vaccinated. What types of incentives? Because I usually think of things like premium offsets and, you know, contributions into a health savings account. Are there other incentives that you've seen or that you would consider that could work in this scenario? Some I've heard that are kind of floating around are offering a $100 gift card to employees who are going to be vaccinated, providing additional PTO days to those who are going to be vaccinated, things like that. I mean, really, like at first, the $100 gift card struck me as, wow, that's really generous. But, you know, I think an employer, if you view the impact of having a large portion of your workforce being vaccinated and the protection that that's going to afford you, I think it's going to save you a lot of money, (laughs) more so than the $100 gift card, right? Yes, yes, I agree. Other than the vaccine, what are some of the other concerns that you see employers facing in the weeks ahead? Well, a lot of questions that I've been receiving lately deal with, is the FFCRA, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, the benefits provided under that, will those be continued beyond December 31? Uh, Similarly, there's a multitude of state and local ordinances that have been put in place since COVID began. And likewise, questions have come up, will those be continued? And it's really, you know, there's no solid answer here. Right now, we haven't heard of anything. I know that they're still working on, in Congress, working on a a package to try and help people out related to COVID. And there still isn't any extension of that type of relief at this point, or whether or not it'll be a, a different act or part two or something like that. And I just want to put, you know, into the mix here, it's December 16th. I had to check the date because all days kind of feel the same. But it's December 16th, 
a lot can happen really quickly, which we have seen in the instance of, you know, like say FFCRA originally. So in the 11th hour, something could come down. What do you think the likelihood is of that? You know, I would think more likely than not that something will happen to extend that. And it may just be that they're willing to extend it for a 90 day period or something like that. It may not be for the full duration of 2021, but I would think they'd provide some relief out there for employees that are impacted by this. And I think until they do that, employers can still consider, you know, providing employees with unpaid time off if they need it for COVID related reasons. Work from home arrangements are obviously very popular right now. So there are some alternatives. Well, and I would anticipate as well, just based on what we have seen in Washington state, our overall response to COVID, even if at the federal level, perhaps something isn't mandated I would completely expect our state to do something. I'm, you know, who knows what that could look like, but uh, something. So you bring up a good point about, you know, what should employers do if employees have run out of their leave and they can't work due to COVID? If it we're in a, a place, of course, where I don't think anybody wants to do unpaid time off, but what are the options? Yeah, I think at that point, it's best to just sit down and talk to the employee like an employer would in the situation of an accommodation under the ADA and going through that interactive process, even though it may not involve something covered by the ADA, it could be that the employee is needing time off to care for a family member rather than themselves. So it wouldn't be ADA related necessarily. But through talking with them, you can find out what they need. Uh, Is it another week off of work? Is it a remote work arrangement, flexible hours? You know, just see what they need and try and make an informed decision about whether or not that request can be granted and document your process along the way. There's been an uptick in cases filed during COVID. I mean, the courts have been pretty quiet because of COVID but it hasn't stopped uh, plaintiff's lawyers from pursuing claims. Uh, This is unchartered territory. So I think some novel theories are being raised, but, you know, for instance, after an employee has exhausted their, whether it's state or local provided leave or under the FFCRA, once that's exhausted and then ultimately perhaps they're terminated by their employer, then the claims are retaliation. I wasn't fired. I was fired because I took that leave. Um, so I, I think the more that an employer can dot their I's and cross their T's and show that they tried to really work with employees who are in this difficult situation, that's much better than just having a policy of, okay, you've exhausted your leave, then you're terminated. Yeah. I, it is interesting the that educational session that you and I sat in this week, they talked about these COVID related claims and lawsuits that are popping up. And, you know, six months or so ago, uh, another employment law attorney who works for one of our carrier partners had mentioned the same thing. And so I think it's probably worth driving home the point that probably one of the biggest areas where there will be vulnerability for employers is if they don't apply the same policy to everyone the same way and create an unfortunate opportunity for 
someone to come forward and say, well, I was terminated, but that person there did the exact same thing and they still have a job. So back to your point on creating the policy and and keeping some consistencies. What about the EEOC? Because we talk about how fluid this is. There's new information every day. And to that end, there was some new guidance that was issued today too. Do you want to talk and do you want to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. It, it just came across my email about noon today. And the EEOC has just given a little bit more guidance um, related to mandatory vaccinations. Uh, specifically, the question was asked if an employer requires an employee to receive the vaccination from the employer or a third party with whom the employer is contracting to administer the vaccine is asking screening related questions subject to the ADA standards. So as most people know, when you go to get a flu shot or something, they will ask you a few screening questions before they administer that shot. So the EEOC has said that if the employer is the one administering the shot and requiring the employee to get the vaccine, then yes, they need to show that those screening questions are job related and consistent with business necessity. To meet that standard, they'd need to have a reasonable belief based on objective evidence that an employee who does not answer the questions and therefore does not receive the vaccine would pose a direct threat to the health or safety of her or himself to others. They did clarify that there would be circumstances in which those disability-related screening questions could be asked without the need to satisfy that job-related business necessity standard. And that would be where the employer offers the vaccination to employees on a voluntary basis so that their decision to answer those pre-screening disability-related questions would also be considered voluntary and not mandatory. And then also, if the employee receives the employer-required vaccination from a third party that does not have a contract with the employer, like your CVS pharmacy or another healthcare provider, then that ADA job-related business necessity standard would not apply either. And you brought up a good point when we prepped for this how many employers are probably going to have the ability to store that vaccine on site? It'll be interesting to see how many employers would even fall into this category, but guidance is good. We like guidance. So thanks. (laughs) Thanks, EEOC. I I assume all the hospitals that are administering this vaccine to all their employees or nurses and doctors, et cetera, I'm, you know, suspect they're following these guidelines and maintaining the confidentiality of the screening questions, et cetera. And certainly there's that direct threat more likely in that scenario than, you know, at your ordinary non-healthcare provider employer. Absolutely. So let's shift gears a little bit. We had a little election in November. We have officially a new president who will take office in January and We expect some new things around that new administration to start happening. What do you think that looks like? There's a couple of areas that we've talked about that were big campaign promises. What's likely? Right. I think, you know, based on some of Biden's labor plan promises, 
related to independent contractors, for instance. I mean, he wanted to put a stop to employers intentionally misclassifying their employees as independent contractors. And his proposal is a modified model off of the California law, the ABC rule, which would result in more people being classified as employees instead of independent contractors. And that would give them the right then to organize and access to various employee benefits and also subjects employers to employment taxes. It seems like at this point that legislation on that topic remains unlikely, but uh, Biden could task the Department of Labor or the IRS with evaluating ways to expand current employee classification rules and increase enforcement. Okay. There's also been talk about other specifically non-competes. What's the administration's stance there? Right. So federal law right now does not currently regulate non-compete agreements. But Biden stated he would work with Congress to eliminate all non-compete agreements with the limited exception for those that are absolutely necessary to protect a narrowly defined category of trade secrets. There have been some Republicans who've supported rules to limit non-compete agreements, making this an area of potential bipartisan action. Washington is one of the many states that's already has restrictions on non-competes that went into effect in January of 2020. And those are that when hired, an employer must disclose the terms of the non-compete covenant in writing to the prospective employee no later than when the, the offer is accepted or for current employees, there must be independent consideration if they're offered a non-compete during their employment. There's also some salary thresholds. Employees must earn more than $100,000 a year or independent contractors must earn over $250,000 a year. Got it. You know, one of the things that we talk a lot about when we talk about legislation, and and that's, you and I have chatted about it. When I talk about state-specific things around healthcare, we talk about it too. There are always the campaign promises, but then there's truly the reality of how legislation happens. And we don't have a government that is built around one individual person. So there might be some interesting things that happen, but what would have to happen for, you know, the Biden administration to create some new law around a non-compete as an example? And what's the likelihood that that gets through both, you know, the House and the Senate? Well, I think even, you know, with the, election runoff coming in January in Georgia, even if the Democrats were to prevail and win both of those seats, then Kamala Harris would still be the deciding um, factor in anything that would pass through the Senate. She would have to sign off on it. And that's assuming that Biden would have the support of enough people, even on his side, to have something pass. So It depends probably on which legislation we're talking about, but I I don't think it's a slam dunk by any means. So it'll, we'll just kind of have to wait and see what, what happens. Yeah. Still have to be able to bring people to the table and compromise and get some majority agreements and voting. Right. So (laughs) um, that is always one of the things I find and take the most hope in from our government is that those checks and balances matter. And 
I would encourage people who, you know, listen to this today to check back in with us as we make other legislative updates available, whether it's with you, Paula, or some of the more state-specific healthcare things that we talk about. Um, important too to add in the disclaimer here that, you know, your advice is not specific to everyone who listens to this because you are not their attorney. This is a general informative session. Um, when people do have really specific scenarios, then you should consult your own legal team or, you, you know, you can engage with us on specific issues, of course, but um, this is informative. Please don't take it as legal counsel. Um, with that, if you have questions about this, if you'd like to learn more about the vaccine or any of the process, Lockton has a ton of resources available and I'm seeing things on probably an every other day basis at this point be made available. Happy to share those with you. And as always, you can follow this on YouTube. You can listen on Apple iTunes. Thank you for connecting with us today. Take good care.